welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. I'm Seb, and this week we're speaking to Beth Scurry, all the way from Australia. Um, we've invited Beth on because, well, Beth works uh, uh, on the open source project called Pact, and uh, Pact is a really interesting project that in- involves contract testing. And I've been interested in contract testing for quite a long time. And with the advent of microservices and continuous delivery, it's just getting more and more important. So uh, welcome, Beth. It's really good to have you with us. Um, Also with us is Steve. Uh, So hi, Beth. Hi, Steve. Hi. Thank you for having me. Hello. There we go. Great. Uh, Thanks for coming, Beth. So um, for us, it's early in the morning. For you, I guess it's later in the day it is quite late on a on a monday evening okay so well we'll we'll understand if you're a little bit tired but we'll try and keep the energy going <laughs> so beth uh, you're, you're the lead developer on the, the pacto open source project uh maybe it would be great if you could just explain what pact does sure so often when we test integration we need to uh stand up both sides of the integration and um, test them together. Now, this has a lot of downsides. It's slow, it tends to be a bit flaky. So PACT helps us uh, solve this integration testing problem by allowing us to run the test for our consumer with a mock provider. And while we're running those tests with our mock provider, uh, we write the interactions, the HTTP request and the expected response to a contract file. We call that a packed file. Then we take that packed file over to the provider project and we replay the requests and we look at the responses that come back. And if the responses that come back match the expected responses, we can be pretty sure that these two services are going to work together correctly in real life. Okay. I mean, so uh, contract testing, is it a new thing or has it been around for a while? I don't think it's very new, no. Um, But I think it has become especially applicable in recent years because of the rising popularity of microservices, as you said. Yeah. I mean, I guess the first time I was consciously aware of it was uh, some work that uh, J.B. Rainsberger did. He did some blog posting on mm, contract yes. and collaboration testing a few years ago. Um, yes. And we've been doing some work around contract testing at Cucumber Limit for a few years now. But uh, it's kind of, if you're going to hand roll it, it can get to be quite uh, quite time consuming. Um, is, that, mm. have you, is that how you came to it in the first place? Uh, well... The way the way I came to it was actually um, quite shortly after hearing one of JB Rainsberger's talks ah. um, on, on what is essentially contract testing. The one uh, titled "Integration Tests Are a Scam." Yeah, that's a good title, um, isn't it? It's 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 a great title, and I always reference it when I um when I introduce people to Pact. <laughs> um, I, I I heard that talk. And I was um, really quite interested in, in it. And I um, asked the, the people at my company, uh, my consult- consulting company, DS, if anybody had heard of a tool that did um, anything like JB was talking about. And there was you know, a whole lot of silence. But um, then my, one of my workmates, Ron Holthausen, who was working out at a place called realestate.com.au, said, well, actually, we're doing a a really similar thing to what JB was talking about. And I should say that JB was talking in the, in the talk that I heard about 
uh, using contract testing at a class level or a, or a module level. But uh, Ron said, we're actually doing exactly that same concept over HTTP for HTTP services. And because that's where my brain was at that moment, I just became quite intrigued with this concept. And that's how I got involved with the PACT project. Okay, so that's quite interesting that you bring that up because there there is, I guess, you know, contract testing itself is a concept that is broadly applicable. It's basically any mm. two things that are cooperating, there's a contract implicit or explicit yeah. between them. But you focus specifically on um, HTTP contracts, is that right? Uh, the PACT library started out uh, as HTTP, but it's grown since then. Uh, to also encompass message queue contracts as well. Okay. So you, you, we, we're actually uh, working on making the framework extensible so that you could test any framework that, uh, sorry, any protocol that could be serialized um, to, a, to a, any file. Okay. Okay. So um, I guess there's a lot of work still to be done in this project. I mean, tell us a bit more about the PAC project then. Do you want to talk about the genesis and where it's got to? Yeah. So it started at realestate.com.au and that was about six years ago now, I think. And it started out as a, a Ruby project. And then as it grew in popularity within realestate.com.au, uh, a Java implementation was written because really the the essence of a contract is is technology agnostic so it doesn't matter what language you do your consumer or provider or your verification or your contract in we're just talking http and we're just talking json or xml um so we wrote the java one and then um that grew in popularity and we thought oh Actually, we'd really like to have a JavaScript implementation of Pact because it's it's such a common uh, integration point to have your JavaScript front end and your um, Ruby or Java back end. And by that stage, we were like, oh, this is the third time we're implementing this. Mm-hmm. The, the rule that once you've you've reached your third implementation, you know you need to start reusing things. Yeah. So um, we we actually did something a bit cheeky. Uh, we used uh, Traveling Ruby to package the Ruby implementation as a standalone package. It's actually a standalone uh, CLI executable, mm-hmm. and we embedded that inside the JavaScript implementation. And that worked, that had pros and cons, but enough of a pro that we then repeated that for .NET and Python and... A few other languages go, um, and sorry, like it's not the most elegant solution in the world, but um, it gets the job mm-hmm. done and it allows us to get features out pretty quickly. Okay, and uh, I mean, Tuki, I'm going to bring you in here. I don't know much about Ruby, but you're a Ruby man. What's what's your uh, what's do you, do you are you interested in this idea of packaging things in, up in traveling Ruby? <laughs> <laughs> well, so. I mean, I can I can talk a little bit about this. So we um, on the Cucumber Pro project, we used um, we, we we used Pact, and, and specifically we had a Ruby um, consumer or client and a um, and a Node JavaScript uh, producer, and so we we wrote a Pact um, using the the Ruby version, and then 
uh, exported that packed into our JavaScript project with Node. And we, we started off using the, the Node, um, or the, the JavaScript version you had. Um, and the one thing we found was it, it was a little slow for our TDD yeah. process. That, that's the only mm-hmm. thing that I've, I found. Um, but because our pack was so small, we just wrote a little parser for the language, which turned it into mocker tests, which worked fine <laughs> for us. But it's not something that you what could if, repeat for other people. Whatever works. Yeah, Whatever exactly. gets the job done. <laughs> but but the important thing for us was this was this pact, right? This um this JSON file which described the contract between the two services. And I think that's the that's the key thing that PACT does is it produces a document that um describes how two services are going to interact. I wonder if it's worth talking about consumer-driven contract testing though, because I think that's um that's kind of the bit that's really new to a lot of people. Um, so mm. could you maybe explain what, what we mean when we talk about consumer-driven contract testing? Yeah. Now, traditionally, when we um, wrote a consumer and a provider or we, we wrote, write an integration, we'd start by going, well, we've got, this, we've got this data source. What's the simplest way we can get this data out of our data source and into an HTTP response so that, that's really how we designed our APIs and <laughs> Rails. I'm looking at you. Um, <laughs> and then we'd make sure that our consumer made the right, in inverted uh, commas, calls to the provider. Now, consumer-driven contracts turns around that process. And we ask, sorry, we start by asking as the consumer, what shape of the data, what requests and responses make sense for me? What, what makes sense the way I want to use, consume, that's why it's called the consumer, consume mm-hmm. this data. And then we make sure that the provider can meet those expectations. So we end up with this API that's uh, really usable because we're starting from real-world examples. It's, it's TDD at the API level. We're starting with our test cases and our use cases, and we're driving down. We're using those requirements to drive out the requirements for the provider. So can you give us maybe an example then of how in practice this could work for a team? Mm. So if you're starting from a, a Greenfields project, uh, it allows the consumer team to start writing their UI code before the API is even implemented. Um, consumer teams often get quite excited about this because they can start playing around, building screens, um, designing their workflows, and it allows them to really rapidly iterate on, on what they want out of this API and then once that part is working, then the provider can actually be implemented to support a UI. Not that every consumer is a UI. This is just one of the typical workflows. That's, so that, that's really interesting then because, you know, especially, well, over the past few years, we may have noticed a lot of people talking about scaling agile, right? And there's, there's people with teams mm. all over the world and they get very excited about I don't know, putting everyone in a large warehouse for two days and uh, threading pieces of twine between uh, 
pins on boards and things like that and essentially though yep. uh, with a contract that's getting defined in this way you've really you've, you're effectively decoupling these teams and allowing different agile teams yeah. to work in their own process so so actually this is really exactly. supporting a scaled a scaled organization have you, have you seen this happen in your yeah. experience Yes, it, I, I've seen the way it allows um, teams to um, decouple their workflows and decouple their deployment processes. So rather than having to um, test everything together and then deploy everything together in lockstep, it allows teams to develop and deploy at their own pace with full confidence that they haven't broken anybody else in their ecosystem. So I think it makes for a much more rewarding development process, knowing that you can do your work at your own pace and not having that feeling of, oh, we have to wait for our two-weekly uh -huh. build release cycle and then, oh, we have to wait for someone to fix their bug before we can all release. Just you can get stuff yeah. done. I'm, I'm going to draw a completely wild uh, analogy here. Uh, you know, Cucumber mm -hmm. is a collaboration tool which is often thought of as a test automation tool feels to me like mm. you might have the same problem coming up down the stream where people think of it as a testing tool where really it's a collaboration tool. Yeah, that's an excellent point actually. And collaboration is really where we want to take it because the way PAT currently works, the collaboration happens but it relies on people to still talk to each other. And one of the main points I, I, I make when I talk about contracts is contracts aren't just a a mechanism for um, uh, fighting out <laughs> fighting out your features without ever talking. You don't just like write a contract and handball it over to the other team and, and just never speak to them. It's supposed to be this uh, collaborative process that gets people talking. So the consumer should be saying, hey, we'd like, we'd like to do something like this. Here's the pact of how we think it could work. What do you think? Not here's the pact. It's not dictator-driven contracts. <laughs> it's supposed to be a collaborative process. So we'd really like to start building in tools to make that collaboration more, uh, more fluid, make it happen more easily rather than me just yelling at people saying, don't forget to talk. That's really interesting. Well, um, not on this podcast, but maybe we could talk about how Cucumber Pro might work with packed collaboration. But that's a, that's for another day. Um, okay, mm. so uh, we've we, we've talked about contract testing, or we we mentioned it uh, from the context of uh, uh, JB's um, integration tester scam uh, work from a f you know quite a few years ago. Uh, we've talked about consumer driven mm, contract testing and and um, and how Pact supports that. Pact itself, how long has it been around? Who's using it? Okay, uh, 2013, I believe. I should have done my research on the dates beforehand. Who's using it? Well, obviously, they're still using it at um, realestate.com.au. Um, people all around the world, we get, we get support requests from people in government running government stuff in England and and um, big corporates in the US and little startups in Germany. Um, it's it's really spread and it's actually really quite exciting to see that happen. That's cool. Uh, and so 
I mean, I guess, you know, we've talked when we mentioned uh, consumer driven contracts, you know, we talk about a, co- a consumer and a provider, but, you know, we've already uh, mentioned microservices and typically uh, companies, when they go microservice uh, in the microservice direction, they go a little bit microservice crazy and they end up with, you know, not just one or two, mm-hmm. but they have oh, yes. tens or hundreds of them. Yes. Know, yeah, exactly. It just keeps going. Um, does Pact does Pact support this sort of escalation of uh, microservices and consumers and providers? Yeah. So one of those one of those tricksy things about microservices is that yes, you're taking the complexity that you might have had in this monolith and you're breaking it down into small manageable pieces. But this this secret about complexity is you really can't kill it. You can break it into smaller pieces, but now you're now you're increasing the complexity of the interactions between the smaller pieces. And if you don't have automated tools to help you manage that new complexity, the microservices are actually going to make your life more complicated. So what Pact helps you to do um, is to keep track of the interactions uh, to visualize if you're using what we call the Pact Broker, which is a, a service that allows you to um, exchange the contracts and exchange the verification results. If you're using this tool, you can start to um, visualize the relationships between your services, um, keep track of the integration status between uh, your services, and use it to query before you deploy to an environment to make sure that the versions of uh, the other services you're about to deploy with you're actually compatible with. You need all these CI tools, uh, these testing tools to help you manage just the overhead of services that you're going to be dealing with. Yeah, because I guess the last thing you want is to get into the point where you have to release all your microservices in lockstep. Oh, my God, yes, that's the distributed monolith. That's that's the worst. I think that's almost worse than a monolith. Yeah, I would agree. Um, but have, have you seen companies that have got themselves into a distributed monolith type situation? Yes. Yes, I have. And there was, you can get yourself into this nasty situation where you, instead of having one big build, you have three separate builds that um, all depend on each other and then come back together at the end of the pipeline to be deployed together. It's it's painful. It's very painful. So, I mean, you wrote uh, an excellent blog post, was it last year or the year before, where um, where you documented the matrix. Now, this isn't oh, yes. this isn't a, yes. a guy wearing black dodging bullets, is it? But maybe you could talk a little <laughs> bit about the matrix. Nowhere near as sexy, no. Yeah, so the idea came um, back back again at realestate.com um, when we'd reached the stage in this contract testing process where the deployments were coming becoming just a little bit trickier because we had reached that critical mass, that critical number Mm -hmm. of microservices where the complexity was just starting to go more than one person could keep track of in their head. And we realized that, sorry, the old old method of um, maintaining coherence in production, the old method of making sure that everything worked together in production was to deploy all the production versions of all the services to a test environment and then to deploy just the candidate version of the service that you wanted to deploy 
and then run all the integration tests over that suite. This scaled okay for the first few services, but then you reach that critical mass and it just becomes too yeah. painful. So what we, what we realized was we actually didn't necessarily need to test everything together at once. We, we had this data in the pact broker. We had this information. What we just needed to do was to mine that information to say, hey, I'm about to deploy, uh, say, version two of my consumer. Can I just make sure that I've tested version two of my consumer against the current production version of my provider? So really you're testing, you're, you're making sure that your, the head version of your consumer is compatible with the production version of your provider. Yep. And when you wanted to deploy your provider, you need to make sure that the head version of your provider was compatible with the production version of your consumer. And that's what I call the matrix is that, that um, two by two square of head, head yep. prod, prod, <laughs> like, a, like the, the genetics, what's it called? That... Um, that little table of, of, um, of <laughs> genetic um, inheritance. I'm afraid you've left me behind there. Uh, my, yeah. No. Like, like the blue-green we'll, eyes we'll just thing. just cut that bit out. Yeah, the you, blue know, brown you know eyes. that little table of inheritance where you've got the um, dominant uh, and recessive okay. gene. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called now. Don't worry, we can cut this bit yeah, out. Yeah, we right? can cut this bit out. Or we can leave it in just for fun. Um, okay, so um, so we've, we, this two-dimensional matrix basically allows you to yes, be, essentially it says we've got the information or we should have the information about yeah. what services um, depend work have been verified with what other services. And so then we can yes. freely deploy yes. them on their own knowing or feeling confident that they're going to work when they sit with the production uh, in, into the production yes, environment. Yes, exactly. Um, you, you, a number of times in the, the past few minutes, you've mentioned packed broker. Um, and so maybe mm. maybe it's worth sort of sketching out what the difference is between packed or packed and packed broker, how that sort of infrastructure sits around. So packed is the tool that runs locally, either locally on the developer's machine or it runs on the CI box. And on the consumer side, it's used to either, it's, it's used to write the contract. And on the provider side, it's used to verify the contract. Now the Pact Broker is a service that allows you to exchange the contracts and exchange the verification results. And the pack broker, so there's a there's one pack broker for an organization? Now, it depends how big your organization is. Um, most places might just need one pack broker. However, if you have a whole lot of different bounded contexts and you have a very large organization, you might want to have a few uh, just to keep the data coherent. But if you're... Um, if, everyone in your company is using every API, sharing as much as possible really makes those services discoverable by other people in the organization. Um, I should also say that the pack broker um, displays the contract in a nice uh, user-readable format, not just the JSON. So it means you can read the interactions between services and use that to 
uh, find out if you might want to reuse a service or for a tester to work out how they might test a service. Right, so using our, um, our mini example of what we did at Cucumber Pro, we had two two projects both run by the same team. So all we did was we generated the packs, the JSON file, and just copied it into our other repository. And we managed the the versioning of those manually because we're a small team and we're, we're able to do that. Yeah. But as soon as you get yeah, yeah. to multiple services or multiple teams interacting, having a central place that those packs live, that's what Pack Breaker gives you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, that's how we started to just copying the packed file from one project to the other. Um, but as you say, it, it reaches the stage where that just doesn't scale as much anymore. And having them somewhere central so they can be viewed by other people and, and reused and um, as this this living architecture, that's the, the value that this pack breaker will bring to so you. So you used a couple of terms during your description. First off, I'm just going to call out, you said bounded context. I'm sure most people listening will have heard of bounded mm. context. It's an idea that comes from domain-driven design. Um, it's beyond the scope of this podcast, I think, but that that's somewhere to go and look for it if you're interested. The other one that really interested me was you said it helped with discoverability, um, and that wasn't something I was aware of. Mm. So could you talk a little bit to how Pack Broker helps with discoverability? Yeah, so as your organization's microservice count grows, they're going to be more and more APIs, and the use of an API correlates with how easy it is to use and how easy it is to find. So there's no, no purpose having this wonderful API if nobody knows about it, nobody can find it, nobody knows what it does. Mm -hmm. So having the pack broker allows people to actually just browse through it and say, oh, actually, we, we're hoping that we can find this service that does X, Y, Z. It looks like there's already something that does something similar. Let's, let's go and talk to that team and, and see if that's the right service for us or Perhaps they'd be interested in, in us writing a new pact and, and asking, well, would you be able to modify uh, this feature so that you can serve this purpose as well? So you get more reuse. Okay. Uh, so basically, so Pack Broker has a sort of, um, I don't know, uh, a description field where people can browse through the services that are there and see, see what's being offered, or do they just go straight down to the functionality? The... The way you would find out what it does, basically the pack broker doesn't have much of a UI because it's primarily <laughs> API driven. But the main page has a big list of um, the index of all the interactions. And if you click on one of those, you'll get a, a human readable description of the contract between two services. So the top will have a little um, index of what the interactions are and then as you click through those, you'll get the, the full example of here's the request, Jason, here's the response, Jason. Um, this is the situation in which this particular request and response okay. happen. Oh, that sounds good. I mean, I'm assuming that you, you're not, not done yet and that it's going to keep on. You, you've got a feature list that you would like to, to hit. <laughs> a very big, long one. We've always had people asking for new features and there's there's so many wonderful ideas out there and we just don't have enough time to get all of them done we're, we're working away as fast as we can so how many people how many active contributors have you got on the pack project 
Yeah, uh, I'd say about 10 at the moment. Um, but that, having said that, that's spread across uh, maybe seven different implementations. So each, um, each language implementation has its own maintainer. And then there's the pack broker as well. So I guess you've got room for people to, to contribute. Oh yes, we would we we would love to have more people helping out. Oh, that people have become um, uh, very helpful in answering packed questions now. As the community has has, um, has grown, it's not just the main contributor that's answering questions now. It's it's really cool to see. But we would absolutely love people to um, submit PRs to to get involved with the discussion, um, to be come on as, as, um, as full-time maintainers as well. And like, uh, do you have a sort of um, easy path in for people who may think that they're not experts in um, contract testing? Uh, yeah, I don't think you need to be an expert at all in contract testing. All of our repos have the um, GitHub good first issue and um, help wanted tags applied to our issues. So that, that would be if anybody's interested, I would say the best way is to go to the implementation that's in the language that they're most comfortable in and have a look for those good first issue, help wanted issues. Nice. Okay. So the other thing I think is that, okay, we've talked about Pact and it's in various different, uh, there's very just various different platforms it's available on. You've got Pact Broker. Um, do I need to install all of that on my hardware or is there a sort of simpler way that I can kickstart, you, you know, just seeing whether Pact will work for my organization? Uh, we're working on, and this is one of those things that we've, we've just come up with the idea uh, with, but we haven't had time to implement it yet. We're working on a, a little um, demo that would run oh, in right. your browser. Uh, so you can just have a, a play around like like a, a packed fiddle, like mm -hmm. JS fiddle. Um, and if anybody wants to put their hand up to implement that, uh, <laughs> please contact me. Uh, but <laughs> um, we have quick, quick start guides for all the languages. Um, all our docs are at packed.io. Um, and we have help on all the channels that there could possibly be help on, Gitter, Slack, uh, Twitter. Okay. Uh, Facebook. GitHub. Delete Facebook. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> not anymore. No, exactly. Um, so so the, you've also got some sort of hosted service. Do you, do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Mm. Yeah, sure. So, um, Dee's the company that I work for uh, is hosting a, a service that allows you to uh, have your own pack broker. Um, Dee's is doing the hosting. It is just the open source one for the moment, but we hope to be adding uh, some new exciting features to that very Ooh. soon. New and exciting. Well, <laughs> watch that space. Okay, that sounds good. Um, now, obviously, Pact is is your um, uh, is your project, and it's I've used it, and it's really excellent. But do we have to use Pact? Are there other ways of approaching contract testing that you could that people could could use? Yeah, so there's there's a few other libraries that do a similar thing. There's Spring Cloud Contracts, and um, that's quite mature. Uh, you can do a similar thing with 
swagger. It's not quite the same. Um, you can use the Swagger document uh, to generate a mock service and you can verify the Swagger document against a running provider using um, a tool like Dread. But you don't have quite the same um, flexibility in the matches. You don't have quite the same um, control over the scenarios. Uh, one of the things Pact um, really gives you is the, uh, the concept of saying, in this situation, when I make this request, I expect this response. And then in a different situation, I might make the same request again and expect a different type of response. So it's this scenario-based um, capability that Swagger just doesn't quite give you that same um, result. Is it true to say that Swagger is more about verifying that the uh, the producer the, the service the api kind of um the calls that you make on it are, are, are there not necessarily that different examples of its usage yeah yeah well swagger is primarily a documentation tool rather than a contract testing tool so it's it's focus is a little bit different and hence what you can get out of it is a little bit different it's it's quite useful and what we're actually working on is a way of making Pact and Swagger work together um, and allowing you to verify. Well, actually, Alessian has already got this tool um, that allows you to verify a Pact against a Swagger document. Okay. Um, and then that you, you still need to take responsibility for verifying that your Swagger document matches your real provider. So there's an extra step, an extra layer of abstraction in there, um, which has... Um, some pros and cons, but uh, one of the pros is that it can allow you to decouple your builds even more than Pact already currently does um, because all you need to do uh, to um, know whether you're compatible with your uh, partner, partner service, is to exchange Pacts and Swagger documents. You don't actually need to wait for any builds to run. Um, the downside is there's a little bit less certainty uh, because you do have that extra layer uh, of abstraction in there. But I think the concept is really quite interesting and we're working on adding support for this uh, workflow in the broker. Okay. Have, uh, have you used Swagger, Tiki? Um, I haven't used it myself, no. I've seen it um, at a couple of places where I've been and um, so, I, I, yeah, uh, I've used it mostly, seen it mostly used as documenting an API. Mm. That's the the key is to make sure it actually stays in sync with the provider, yeah. and that's that that's the the value that Pat gives you is always making sure this contract is in sync with the provider. So to point out, I don't know whether how much you know about um, BDD and uh, the Cucumber family of tools, but you know we talk a lot about living documentation, which is exactly that, which is documentation yes. Yes. that signals to you when it, mm. it it deviates from how the system is implemented. So and another parallel. And yes. since I'm in a, para a, world, yeah, a, a spa yeah. space of drawing parallels, are you aware of the approval testing library that maybe Llewellyn Falco uh, talked about on this podcast a while ago? Um, and uh, okay, no, so there's approval one. testing. It seems to me like Pact is, in fact, another flavor of approval testing where you, you set up 
um, mm. unexpected response, and then you run it against, you verify it against the service that either is providing or consuming. And uh, approval testing is a library that Llewellyn has provided on a number of different platforms. And there's also a, a, a textual-based one, which is called Text Test, which uh, Jeff Beach uh, has released as an open source. So there's a there's a bundle of stuff. Again, it's 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 general. It's about any sort of textual document rather than specifically trying to help with um, HTTP based mm -hmm. or, or or other protocol based services. And one of the things that those things give uh, people who are dealing with the monoliths, the legacy monoliths, is that obviously the, the first step that mm. people have uh, troubles with is refactoring uh, because there's no test there. And so refactoring in the absence of tests is really hard. And something like text test allows mm. you to generate just with log outputs or print statements a whole trail of text that uh, should be the same every time. And then text test will yeah, verify that as you do the refactoring, the textual output remains unchanged. So, so there's some wonderful parallels mm. that's a, that have been coming up here. I'm, I'm enjoying this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the concept, the con once I understood the concept, it just makes so much sense. That's a good thing about something that just is, uh, it's almost back to basics, isn't it? Um, there is a contract. I think one of the issues mm. is that uh, we don't get taught enough about contracts. Uh, when we hear about contracts, it's in the legal sense. But, um, you know, we, we've had the, the, the object orientation has been going, going strong now for 20 odd years. And uh, it's been understood or implied by a lot of people in it that that API, that uh, interface is the contract, but actually the, the explicit contract that most object-oriented languages give you is not complete. And, you know, it can compile, but it can still fall in a flaming heat when you turn it on because uh, you're, not, you're not getting exactly the values that you expect. Mm -hmm. um, and so PACT, I guess, yep. is making that, that contract explicit by, by asking you to write it out and verify your consumers and your providers against it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and one of the things I think it gives you over a schema is that a schema will tell you every single possible combination of um, data for a particular document, but it doesn't tell you about the usage. It doesn't tell you the story of how this API gets used. And I think that's one of the other um, benefits that contract testing will give you because it tells you how your API gets used. I suppose there's one question which is always good to end on. So we've, we've given people a, a, a tool to add to their toolbox, um, but are there any warnings? Are there places that they shouldn't use it? Nice. Oh, yes. <laughs> In fact, I have a section. I have a section on, um, on the PacDocs uh, website, which is what is Pact good for and what is Pact not good for? Because you should always use the best tool for the job. Um, I don't really recommend PACT for using, uh, testing those broadly used services that have hundreds of customers, uh, have hundreds of consumers rather. Um, for example, your authentication server. Like your authentication server is not consumer driven. The requirements of the consumers are not driving out the functionality that's available on that. It's it's the way it is and it's not going to change for anybody. <laughs> so it doesn't really make much sense to verify 
you know, a hundred different contracts that are practically the same. And in that case, um, providing a mock authentication server um, and distributing it somehow makes much more sense there. Um, Consumer-driven contracts doesn't really work for public APIs. Like imagine if GitHub um, had to verify a contract for every single user in the, in the world. It just doesn't scale. So there's really this sweet spot for consumer-driven contracts, and that's for intra-organization APIs where the, the number of um, consumers per provider is small enough that you can actually re- um, maintain some sort of relationship between the teams because really it's still about collaboration. You need to be able to collaborate for this contract process to really work. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that comes up in um, domain-driven design as well, isn't it? There's a there's a name for that relationship, which I forget at the moment about actually having teams that are uh, that can reach out to each other. <laughs> Excellent. Um, well, thank you very much for coming along. Um, I'm hoping really that people important. have been listening to this. If you've got to this far in, along, you must have been enjoying it. And if you have been enjoying it, then uh, please check out the show notes where we're going to have uh, links to the, some of the articles uh, and blog posts that we've been discussing. Uh, you probably picked up this podcast off of a podcast provider, iTunes or similar. And if you did, then we'd love you to leave comments or review it. Uh, and as Beth said, if you would like to help with the um, the continual development of Pact, uh, all help welcome. So, Beth, thank you very much for coming along today. It's been really good talking to you. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. Uh, right. Goodbye, folks. <laughs>